This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The pandemic prompts a high-profile geriatrician to run for politics and why beekeeping has become a top pandemic pastime. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Massachusetts is the first U.S. state to mandate vaccines for nursing home staff, and it comes amid a rapid rise in COVID-19 infections. With more than a quarter of the workers unvaccinated, the state has given staff at its facilities until October the 10th to get the jab. Meanwhile, the largest American nursing home operator followed suit. Pennsylvania-based Genesis Healthcare, which has 70,000 employees at nearly 400 nursing homes and seniors communities, says workers will have to be vaccinated or lose their jobs. Ontario is still resisting making vaccines compulsory for health care workers. 63-year-old Sharon Stone claims she's being threatened with the loss of an acting job because she's demanding that everyone on the film set be vaccinated. But the Producers Guild of America will not guarantee that, and Stone is refusing to work until everyone gets the jab. The actress also revealed she lost her health insurance after 43 years in the business because of COVID. It seems Canadians don't want to give up working from home. A new Angus Reid survey finds that many workers would leave their jobs rather than go back. While many companies are planning a return to the office soon, the pollster says nearly half of those questions would either quit immediately or go back to the workplace but start looking for a new job. Part of this is also changing the narrative of what a doctor looks like. And I wanted to be able to send that messaging back to the younger generation of girls. A Canadian doctor said none of the Barbie dolls she played with growing up looked quite like the woman she aspired to be. But now Dr. Chika Stacy Orioa has one made in her likeness. The physician, who's also a spoken word poet and advocate, worked with the Barbie team to design a doll with her skin tone and Afro-textured hair, wearing a white coat and stethoscope. The doll is part of a limited collection by toymaker Mattel to honor healthcare workers on the front lines. Dr. Orioa is being recognized for her advocacy against systemic racism in healthcare. What about Cloris Leachman? Mrs. Stanforth, perfect, blue, Frau Blucher. <laughs> she's she's going to be perfect. Iconic comedian Mel Brooks has a new memoir. All About Me, My Remarkable Life in Show Business is due out in November. And in it, the 95-year-old shares highlights and a few setbacks in a career that includes movie classics like Young Frankenstein, 
Blazing Saddles, and the film and Broadway play The Producers. Brooks says he hopes fans of comedy will get a kick out of the stories behind his work. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We know him as a leading geriatrician and a member of Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table. And he's also a frequent guest on this radio station. So what is making Dr. Nathan Stahl turn to politics? I talked with him shortly after he announced that he is seeking the Ontario Liberal nomination in Toronto St. Paul's. For me, the pandemic changed everything. You know, I always went into medicine and to research to serve uh, people. And I, I realized during the pandemic and really as, you know, I think as we come out of this, that, you know, one of my best opportunities to serve the greatest number of people in the largest way might may be through public office. Well, uh, that's certainly the idealistic view. You say that the pandemic changed everything. So what in particular, you're a geriatrician and, of course, nursing homes were the hardest hit. That was something I provided clinical care to, it was something I researched, and it was something that on the science advisory table, we provided uh, scientific advice and expertise. You know, but at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm just an advisor, right? I'm not the ones holding levers of power or uh, writing the policy that's going to impact these people's lives. And, you know, this is when I sort of realized that if I want to do this, if I want to make that change in a substantial way, uh, I think that there's no, you know, better platform than through elected office to be able to be in those those rooms, to be able to write that policy and to be able to exact that change that I, you know, I, I want to see and my constituents would want for, you know, to improve the, the lives of older adults and those living in long-term care. Were there any particular recommendations that you offered the government about long-term care that were not taken up that that really sort of spurred you to this? You know, one of the fundamental things that I I, I think we got wrong in this pandemic uh, from the beginning was, you know, really this false belief that we could allow some virus to run rampant and protect our most vulnerable um, and and the the reason to let some of that virus run rampant was to preserve some of the economy and some of society being open. And I think we've seen time and time again across different jurisdictions of the world that um, jurisdictions that did not strive to you know maximally suppress the virus, everyone ended up losing. I recognize that you know we are just one piece of advice. We're scientific advice, right? And there are many interests that they're balancing as decision makers. But you know that sort of the, the the quest to try and balance the economy and control the pandemic was a false one, and I think a false one that cost people, you know, economically, that cost people's lives, and that, you know, cost our kids being in school. We still don't have mandatory vaccination. I absolutely think, and I've been very clear about this before even declaring my, you know, political intentions, that vaccines should be mandatory among healthcare workers, especially those living in long-term care. And, you know, I would add education workers. And, you know, I'm, you know, people have asked me, why are you joining specifically or why do you align with the Liberal Party? They align with my values. You know, I would argue about other vaccines that we've overlooked over the years, like influenza vaccine, you know, as a condition of working in direct care and providing direct care to our most vulnerable. You know, I can understand why people are frustrated that there's no, you know, mandatory vaccination. The Premier has made clear that this is people's 
fundamental right. And, and it is true that it's their fundamental right to refuse a vaccination, and we need to respect that. But it's not anyone's fundamental right to work in a certain sector. A lot of businesses are struggling with ramifications of making vaccinations mandatory for a return to work in-house or in the office. You know, one of the things that I think is, is that we're seeing is also a reluctance to make uh, vaccines mandatory or a condition for entry into certain high-risk settings. So, you know, New York City has made entry to a bar uh, and to, uh, you know, indoor gyms, uh, vaccination is a requirement, and, and they've set up a vaccination certi- certificate cert- certificate system. That's something the Premier has said they're not going to do. You know, the issue is, um, with the more transmissible Delta variant, with society being open, you know, your choice is ultimately going to be, do we close sectors on mass and harm the economy again, or do we set up systems where we make them safer by having vaccinated people only interact with each other that protects patrons, that protects the essential frontline workers, and it protects businesses. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, it's not an easy issue, but decision makers and politicians are not tasked with easy issues. But I think it's really the right thing to do here. Do you continue as a doctor until the nomination process is over? What's, what's your path? I plan on, as, as predecessors of mine who have held elective offices done, I plan on continuing, you know, to be a doctor and to practice some clinical medicine. It's a condition of my licensure. Obviously, whatever role I may or may not take on in government and my position will dictate how much of that time I'm able to offer. And then, of course, you know, I do have strong ties to the academic and scientific community, right? And and I would like to, you know, see how some of those things, that particularly some of the work we've done during COVID-19, how that research and, and policy work, and, the, and the, you know, my deep connections in that world can really feed into, you know, decision-making and how we make evidence-based and informed decisions for this province. How are your colleagues uh, reacting to this? I think, unfortunately, politics is um, a world that scares a lot of people, right? Um, and it's not seen by some as, you know, neither the safest nor the most, you know, attractive career choice. I, I hope we can change that. I hope I can, you know, be uh, someone who is successful in this career and, and, and incentivizes other young people who are in science and in medicine and other health professions um, to seek public office and to serve in this way. People are overwhelmingly very supportive. I think they know that I'm going into it for the right reasons. Um, and I want to show people that that's the case. Okay, good luck to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. That was geriatrician Dr. Nathan Stahl. He's seeking the Ontario Liberal Party's nomination to run in St. Paul's. During the Wynn government, the riding was held by Dr. Eric Hoskins, who served as health minister. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, the buzz on beekeeping. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. Beekeeping has been booming because of the pandemic. 
With people spending more time at home, an increased focus on the natural world and local sustainable food has made this a big COVID-era hobby. I chatted with Michelle Wolfson of the Ontario Beekeepers Association. What have you noticed in terms of a heightened interest in beekeeping during the pandemic? It seems that somehow everybody's interested in bees in some way, shape, or form. Some people are just interested in getting more pollinators into their own gardens, and other people are hands-on wanting to get into the honey and start their own hives. And why do you think it is at this time? Well, it's a combination of awareness of environmental issues that our native pollinators are under stress and that um, we have to support them. And then once they start to look into it, uh, you know, they always uh, think of the honeybee as one of the most um, popular (laughs) pollinator. And so they start to look into honeybees. They find out that um, a beehive is a very small box. Um, They learn that there are other people who are doing beekeeping in their community and they kind of get interested and it's just kind of like a, a, a pandemic puppy with just uh, more legs and wings and um, <laughs> somehow a little bit less care. What is involved uh, in getting into this? You say a hive is the size of a box. An actual Langstroth hive um, is not a very big unit. I mean, they're just a couple of feet tall and they're only 19 inches wide. So it's not something that um, takes up a huge footprint in your backyard, despite the fact that the honeybees can travel up to five kilometers to forage. So it looks like a small operation. But inside that hive, um, the beekeeper is now responsible for more or less maintaining the, we're going to loosely say health, but it's like the home of 50,000 stinging insects. How much does it cost to get one of these bee boxes? (laughs) Well, the actual physical dollars are actually nothing compared to the amount of education and experience that you have to invest. You might be able to buy a complete colony for $350 from, uh, you know, one of the beekeeping uh, suppliers near near Toronto. Um, and, you know, you can, you know, just with a little bit more equipment, uh, you're off and running and you could be producing your own honey. The thing is that having bees is a huge responsibility. You actually have to take care of them because we have placed them in a box. If a beehive is in a tree... Well, nobody has to take care of it. And it makes all of its own decisions on how big the colony is going to be and, you know, what's going to go on in there. But once the beekeeper places the bees into one of these Langstroth hives, they are now controlling the amount of space that the bees are going to have, where the bees are located, if there's going to be skunks. All these things that the beekeeper, um, the, the, the bees lose control of when they're under the management of a beekeeper. So the beekeeper has to then be responsible for making sure that they have adequate food in the spring, um, making sure that there aren't pests and diseases inside the colony. They have to be inspecting them. But I think the most important thing in an urban environment 
is they have to make sure that the colony doesn't want to swarm. That is, that the colony doesn't get so big inside the box that the queen and half of the bees go out in search of another home to live in. Because then you end up with swarms in downtown, on parking meters, and on the sides of buildings, and that doesn't present good optics for the public. And the beekeepers lost half their bees. Hmm. See how much to learn there is? <laughs> it's just an awful lot to learn. And what's involved in harvesting your own honey? Well, harvesting honey is possibly the easiest part of beekeeping. It's just the stickiest. But basically, um, when the bees uh, live inside the colony, they produce wax from their bodies that they build into honeycomb. And that's where the blossom nectar is stored. And um, then it uh, becomes the honey after it's, uh, you know, reduced in, in moisture. And then you just pull those frames out. And at home, you could, it's as simple as just scraping it off, off and running it through um, just a sieve or, a, you know, like a cloth filter. And there you are. You got your own honey. Yeah, and you put your own label on it. That's it. At the beginning of this, you called it like the pandemic puppy. Do you anticipate a lot of abandoned hives? I think that what we will see is there's a lot of one- and two-year beekeepers, but there aren't very many five- and seven- and eight-year beekeepers because, unfortunately for honeybees, we have a varroa mite, which is a pest that lives on the honeybee, and it isn't difficult to control, but it does take a certain amount of understanding of the varroa life cycle, understanding of products that you need to use to um, control it, kind of the same way, you know, you might control fleas on a dog, like you, ha you have to understand how they're used and they can wipe out a colony. So if you're a brand new beekeeper, you haven't taken any in-person classes, which is pretty much everybody during the pandemic, you haven't done a mentorship with another beekeeper, again, because of the pandemic, you could really be at a huge disadvantage and next spring you could end up having no hives because they will have all died um, by suffering from diseases carried by the varroa mite. Anything else you want to leave us with on this? Always buy honey from your local beekeeper and get to know them, and they can tell you all about the flowers that are in bloom, and they also can tell you about important things you can do in your own front and backyards to help the native pollinators, and it's all about plant, plant, plant. Thank you so much. That was so interesting, Michelle Wolfson. My pleasure. That was Michelle Wolfson of the Ontario Beekeepers Association. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.